Hi, I'm Robin Sodling, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 78 of the Functional Tennis Podcast, and it's a mega episode with former world number four, Robin Sutterling, the guy who broke the dreams of many Rafa Nadal fans back in 2009, and more recently his willingness to talk openly and help people with mental health issues. We touch on so many topics, from family life, the famous 2009 Rafa match, the Federer final, coming back to the final a year later, glandular fever, mental health issues, his tennis company, Plain Paddle, as well as him offering great snippets of advice throughout the chat. It's an episode I've been working hard to put together and excited I got to have this chat with Robin. A quick thanks to Henrik at the Swedish Tennis Magazine for giving Robin the final nudge. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger. I hope you've got your Slinger bag ordered for Christmas. I was finally able to get back hitting on the courts and with limited movement still in play for me, it comes in very handy. Okay, here we go. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. How are you? Hi, I'm very good, thank you. It's nice to be on your on your podcast. It's really exciting for me to have you on. I've been chasing up with the guys at RS at your brand, RS Tennis, for a while now, and we glad this is arranged. And uh, also, they've been great to me over the years. They're one of the early supporters of Functional Tennis when we got started. So uh, huge thanks to Huge thanks to the guys, uh, your team there, they're really nice and supportive. So I uh, just want to say that at the start. And we'll talk a bit more about RS Tennis towards the end. But uh, before that, before we get to talk, obviously the, the thing people want to hear about when they hear about you, Robin, is the Rafa match. But before we get into that, I have a couple of questions. You're a competitive man. How do you stay fit today and keep that competitive hunger that you have? Well, I, I try to stay, you know, I love to train. So I try to train maybe not every day, but at least, you know, four or five times a week. And I play some, uh, some paddle, some tennis. I go to the gym sometimes, you know, but it's not, it's not as uh, competitive anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that I lost a little bit of that competitive edge because during my during my career it it kind of went crazy sometimes a little bit over the top so i still when i play you know tennis and paddle i still want to win but it's not the end of the world if i don't which is a nice feeling <laughs> so you still have friends afterwards you're saying uh sometimes most of the times <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and tell me which do you prefer now tennis or paddle it's different you know i, I Someone asked me, like, if I could only play one of the two sports uh, for the rest of my life, I would definitely choose tennis. You know, for me, it's more of a sport. And that's what I've been doing almost every day since I was four years old. And I still love it. But paddle is a different thing. You know, it's 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 a completely new thing. You know, I feel that I'm improving every time, you know, every week uh, when I practice, I get better, which is unfortunately not the case in, in tennis anymore. You peaked a while ago in tennis. Yeah, it's exciting. And do you play any competitions in paddle? Uh, no, I played. I played only one uh, competition, uh, and we, uh, me and Jonas Björkman, actually, we played together, and we got to play 
uh, one Swedish guy who won the Swedish championships together with uh, Cayetano, a Spanish guy who now lives in Sweden. And he was he was a top 50 player. Now he's ranked around 100 in the world. So it was tough. You know, we lost in straight set, I think, 7-5, 6-2 or something. But these guys are good. You know, they've been, they've been playing paddle uh, since they were kids, as I did with the tennis. And uh, I don't think no matter how much I train now, I will, now, I will never be as good as them. Uh, you you, ne- you never know, but isn't it? It's like one of those games where if a tennis player goes to play squash or they go to play paddle and they've never played before, they think they're going to be pros straight away. Like until you play somebody who's played paddle their whole life or played a while, you're like, oh god, yeah, they're re- I'm really bad at this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, actually, in paddle, you know, um, it helps that I play tennis. You know, my smash is pretty good, volleys pretty good but you know try to read uh, uh, the walls the glass and everything it really takes time and uh, I see so many times when when good uh, good tennis players they start to play paddle you know they in the beginning they play way too offensive you know you go for for stupid shots you know these guys they're really good paddle players they're so calm on court you know they find the angles and uh, they're not playing with pace until they really know that they can get the ball over the over the glass. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Even me as a tennis player, you just want to go in and hit the smash as hard exactly. as you can. And it does. And if you're tall, you might get it over the fence, but that doesn't really happen too often. But yeah, I completely understand what you're saying there. And also, going on to tennis here, when you practice playing tennis, do you just have a select group of guys you play with? Or do you hit in with any of the top Swedish juniors? Uh, yeah, since um, I work, I work for the federation since since the beginning of of this year as a Davis Cup captain. So uh, during during our training weeks, you know, I I get to play a little bit with the players, uh, the professional players, also some juniors. I played uh, quite a few times with Elias Umer, uh, which is great. This is what I love, you know. Uh, we can play, we have good practices together, and uh, it's it's nice. I kind of get a little bit of the feeling back, you know to when I played myself. The thing is, you know, it's tough when they want to practice three, four days in a row. After one or two days, you know, my body hurts a lot. But uh, it's nice because I think like um, for for one match or for, for one or two practice sessions, I can still play really well. It's just that, you know, I I feel that I can't do it for, for every day during a whole week. Wait, you're still young. You're only 36. Yeah, I know. Uh, but I think like if I started to play a little bit more, if I would do it more regularly, uh, I think it will it will come back pretty fast, you know. But uh, now, you know, I didn't play much uh, for for a few years. And now I started to play. And, you know, it's sometimes I play a lot one week and then maybe I'm not grabbing a racket for one or two weeks. And then I play again a few times not playing for a week and then I play a lot next week so it's 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 not regularly yet yeah no but when I saw you were 36 I thought you were a bit old you know you kind of lose track when so you retired a while ago and you always think somebody's a bit older when they retired years ago and like you'd be you'd be competing if you if you're still there now and healthy and you'd kept going you'd be right in the mix now because 36 is seems to be an average age now of the top tennis players so yeah that's 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 crazy yeah you know especially you know five six years after i retired you know i still there's there was still so many players you know i used to play against my age even older that was still competing and doing well and then 
And of course, sometimes that was tough to to think about because, you know, I played my last match when I was only 27. Uh, and in my mind, you know, I wanted to play many years. Now it's like, okay, there is still a few guys 36 or older, but they're getting fewer and fewer, which is in one way nice, you know, because now I, I don't have to think about it that much. But of course, you know, you see guys that I, Vavrinka is still playing and then, uh, I remember, you know, a few years back when Wawrinka was winning Grand Slams, uh, Silic winning Grand Slams, a lot of, uh, some of new, the new guys, you know, not only the top, top three guys were winning and I saw those players and I had a winning record against them and, you know, I wanted to come back and it was, it was tough for me sometimes to watch tennis then because, you know, I was just laying in the couch and I really wanted to be out there competing. Yeah, I I don't know what that feels like, to be honest, but I'd say it's incredibly hard when, as you say, you've beat, you beat these guys, you'd win in records, they couldn't beat you. It must have been so hard. But look, the advantage is you're young, you've loads of energy to run your business, to run after your kids, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, in one way, uh, it's been good. You know, my, my oldest kid, my daughter, she's, she's eight years old now. And, uh, you know, I'm not that old and we play a lot of tennis with my kids, do a lot of sports. Um, but it's also, you know, to, to combine with the, with the full-time work, both at the tennis federation and with my, with my company, it takes a lot of time. So I really feel that I'm keeping myself busy during the days. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Look, you've, you've no reason not to keep yourself busy. I'm, I can't wait to hear about actually trying to grow a tennis company must be extremely hard, but we leave that till a, till a bit later on. But while you're just talking about still playing tennis, one of the questions we asked our followers on Instagram for some questions to ask Robin, and one of the most popular one was your racket. So I'm going to ask to you right now. First of all, do you still use the same head racket? Yes, I do. Still the same. And I use the same model, I think, pretty much since I was... 17. The bottom of your racket is different to every other racket out there. The book cap part, what exactly was going on there? You know, I started to work in the beginning of my career, you know, you always travel with 10, 12 rackets. And I kind of felt that I used the leather grip and they were all the same in the beginning. But, you know, as soon as you play a little bit more with one racket, uh, they start to change. So I kind of felt that, you know, they were all they were all different and it happened so quickly. Just after a couple of hours, I played with one racket. It felt different. The, the grip felt different when with um, compared to the other ones. And uh, it was crazy. You know, I remember sometimes I, I traveled with 12 rackets, but I could only play with one or two of them and it was difficult. And then, um, and I used this big butt cap as well. Um, I, in the beginning, I started to, um, me and the, the guys at, uh, P1, they started to elaborate with tape and, and it was good. But again, you know, as soon as you play a little bit more with one racket, it gets different from the other one. So, um, he came up with this suggestion and he said, um, Nate at, at P1, he said, I only did this once before I tried this for Pete Sampras and he didn't like it, but we can try. So. I took my favorite racket, the one I really liked, and he made a mold out of the handle. So, and it's like, it's, I don't know what material it is, kind of like a plastic material, you know, it's it's liquid you put inside the mold and it gets hard and then they're all the same. So I just put the um, um, overgrip on top. 
And since then, I never had any problem. Uh, it's really hard. I mean, it's not it's not good if you if you're prone to get a lot of blisters or something in your hands. But I liked it, and since then, I could always play with all my rackets I was traveling with. And did you have a leather grip over the handle? Uh, exactly. So um, he made a mold out of the leather grip. He made a mold. Wow. Yeah. So it's like exactly the same. And then I just put. So I don't. So now and during my career, I didn't play with the with the um, with the leather grip. Uh, and they, I did in the beginning, but after he made a mold, it was just like a mold. You can see the <laughs> the, the the grip, the leather grip, and then I put an over grip on top. Wow, that must, that, I, I can only, I can't imagine how hard that is. That must have been, you know, it's like playing with a wooden stick a little bit. Ah, it's really hard. Uh, for me, it wasn't a problem. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, because I remember how, how much problems I had in the beginning of my career. I kind of felt all rackets were a little bit different. It's just a matter of, you know, a tenth of a millimeter, but I felt that I was very sensitive to the, um, to the feeling in the grip. Well, at the highest level of the game, all these millimeters make a big difference. So whether it's a ball bounced a millimeter out or how something feels in your hand, I think these are the marginal gains that top athletes talk about. Yeah, and uh, the better I became, I kind of felt that the smaller the margins became. You know, all players out there, they're the top players, they're all so fit. Um, they're doing all the things right. And I was trying to do everything right. I was, I was very very picky with everything and especially the material. So I tried to elaborate. I, I didn't want to leave anything behind, you know, leave anything out. I wanted to do 100% in all all areas I could. And material was, of course, one of them. Well, I'd say, yeah, the best just ne- never leave anything to chance. And that's it's great to hear you saying that. It reminds, the whole field thing reminds me a bit of like a great racing driver where you know, they just feel, the better drivers can just feel everything and they know, I don't understand how they do it, but like their suspension, all the different things, they, they're they just so good at feeling these little things. And obviously the, the better tennis players are better at feeling all these different things, where it's their body, the grips, the racket, every, the types of balls. And it's just amazing to see how you guys can just quickly know the difference in little details. And I suppose that's what makes you the best. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's that's one of the reasons I think the sport has improved has improved so much over the last, you know, I would say 20, 20 years. Um, I don't think it wasn't really the case in the 80s or 90s. Um, you know, players were really good, but now everyone's so serious with everything, you know, from how they sleep, how they train, what they train, and rest, what they eat, everything. You know, the top players, they don't leave anything anything out. I think because the margins are so small, everybody is so good and the competition is so tough. Yeah, you're probably best off you're retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can eat what you want, sleep when you want, how you yeah. want. and Have a and beer, watch some tennis. <laughs> yeah, don't feel. I'm sure there's there's still guys out there having beers on the tour, but I I don't think they're they're top five or top ten. And you've two two kids. Is it an eight year old and a five year old? So a daughter that she's eight, and my son uh, is five. And are you going to be pushing them? You say they play tennis. Are you going to be encouraging them to play tennis, or is there other sports that the family is keen on? I mean, me and me and my wife, we decided we we're gonna push them to do sports. I think that's that's really important. You know, you see nowadays, especially in the in the um, the Western world, you know, there's a lot of kids 
just sitting around all days, uh, you know, watching their watching TV, playing video games or on their iPads. I think when I was a kid, you know, basically everything I did after before, after and after school was just doing sports, whether it was playing tennis or just playing football in my backyard or, or you know, playing, uh, playing handball or whatever. So sport was the uh was the the thing i really liked most and it's it's not the case anymore you know if i look at kids in sweden you see now it's either you know they from a really young age they start to um to specialize in a sport and they train you know 3 4 hours every day or there's kids that doesn't do any sport you know this spontaneous uh, thing of just doing sports I think it has disappeared a little bit so uh, I try to push them to move every day and then I don't really care if they like tennis or, or football or, or swimming or whatever um, my daughter she actually likes tennis so she she plays you know five six five six times a week my son tried you know he plays once or twice a week but he's always like I want to play paddle instead I want to play paddle paddle and football that's his thing <laughs> nice. Well, I think you said something very important there is you encourage them to move every day. And as you say, whatever sport is great, but once they're moving, that's important. We had Matt Little, Andy Murray's strength and conditioning coach on last a couple of weeks ago now. And he was saying, he was talking about you. We were asking like, what kid, what sports should kid play? And he goes, they should play a mix of sports. It doesn't matter once they're playing and they shouldn't specialize so early. So exactly what you said. Yeah, do what you what you like. I think, you know, sport is not only you don't have to you can do sport your whole life. You don't have to even try to become a professional athlete in any sport. But I think you, um, there's so much science showing how good it is to move every day. You know, everything gets better. Your health get better. Uh, you get better in school. You can concentrate better. Everything is better. And I think it's really important to set that mindset for the kids in an early age for them to um, for them to move every day and you know you go to school almost every day at least five five times a week you go to school no one and you do it for six seven eight hours every day and no one says anything and then if if you're pushing your kids to move one hour every day they're like oh my god you're pushing them so hard yeah no i, I totally see where you're coming from and also it's important that you or we as parents show them an example that we're out moving every day and that helps. Exactly. I mean, that's so much more important than telling them. I mean, if you're telling your kids to move and, and you yourself, you're just sitting all day in the couch, you know, it's not going to work. So, so many times I, I take them for a run myself in the, in the forest or we, we go play tennis or we do some swimming and I always try to do things together with them so much easier. Well, there you go. There's the advantage of being a young parent. You can do these exercises with your kids and be able to get up the next morning. And then, yeah, of course, if if they want to specialize in one sport, if they, you know, if 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 one of my kids would say like, "Oh, I really only want to play football or only want to play tennis, and I want to become a pro," I would, I think, I would tell them, you know, I would show them in a pretty early age, like, "Okay, this is what it takes." to have a small, small chance to become a pro, a pro. And are you willing to do that? You don't have to. But if they are willing and if they want to try, of course, I would, uh, I would uh, encourage them to do so. 
Well, at least you can show them exactly or you can tell them exactly what it takes because I'm sure a lot of people who want to be pros don't know exactly what it takes, the commitment and it, it's tough. So let, let's move on to what a lot of people want. When they think of Robin Sutherland, they think of Rafa Nadal, your famous, your famous victory. And as I was saying to you before this call, you're probably fed up talking about it, but it's probably one of your best matches ever. I don't know if it's your best match ever, but it's probably one that's up there in your memory. What do you think of when you look back at that match? What's your first thought? Probably um, the the few couple of hours or an hour before the match. You know, I remember I felt really good. It was it was actually the first time for me playing a fourth round match in any Grand Slam. Before that, I my best results a few times were third round, and I remember beating David Ferrer in the in the third round. Played really well, and I felt really relaxed. You know, this was the second week of a Grand Slam. I was uh, I was going to play against Rafa, who never lost. You know, no one expected it, me to win, and it was kind of a good feeling. You know, I I could go out on the court, play really freely. I felt like I had nothing to lose, and at the same time, I felt that I was playing well. I was in good shape. Um, I had been playing well for the last few weeks, and um, so it was it was a good feeling. And you'd played him in Rome a few weeks before before that, but. It was a pretty, it was a, what, a, a love and one. But did I hear you say you were actually felt you were, you, you played well. I heard you in different interviews saying, even though it was a bad score, you were playing well. Is that true? Yeah, I think even though, you know, I lost big in that match, that match really helped me, even though it might sound crazy. You know, I only won one game, but I remember for a set, a set and a half, it was really tough. You know, I had a lot of, a lot of game points, a lot of deuces, um, it was, you know, I felt that I was competing with him. Then, of course, you know, I think um, I lost focus at the end of the match, you know, and it kind of, uh, he ran away with the victory. But, you know, after the match, I felt like, okay, he beat me. He, he killed me on the scoreline, but I felt that it wasn't, it wasn't that far off anyway. It could easily been, you know, a 7-5-6-4 match. Okay, so deep down, you know, you've this inner confidence now, I can keep up with this guy, I can beat this guy. Yeah, and, you know, it was an okay match. I think I played pretty pretty well in Rome, even though, you know, I lost big, but I knew that I could play uh, even better and, and, and way better. So I just felt like, okay, if I get a chance again, you know, I can play, uh, I can play even better. And then, you know, I, I felt there's going to be a, a close match. Okay, which which it was, and just before when you look at a draw for a Grand Slam, all of them, are you the type of person who takes one match at a time, or do you do you see the route to the do you look at the route to the final? I mean, in the beginning of my career, I kind of looked at the at the whole draw, and I was like, it was a different feeling. Like I felt like, okay, maybe I can reach a third or the fourth round. That's good. And the later stages of my career, you know, I was. Um, I was not happy. I felt before every Grand Slam, I felt that, okay, I can actually win this. I might not be, you know, the first favorite or even the second or the third favorite, but there, at least there is a chance for me to win it. Uh, and that was a nice feeling. And then, uh, uh, you know, the last few years of my career, I never looked further than to the next match in any draw. I didn't want to know who I was playing if I'm, if I'm about, if I win this match, this next match. Um, and it, it helped me, you know, I didn't want to think further ahead, but for me, 
in Grand Slams, you know, I had a feeling of it was two different tournament in, tournaments. You know, first week was kind of more about, you know, coming through and make it through the first week. And then all of a sudden I felt that like from the fourth round or quarterfinals, a new tournament started. You know, it wasn't something that I was... Um, that I was thinking about or saying to myself, but I always kind of had that feeling. Okay, it's like, let's get through the first week. The first week is a battle and then you're set up nicely for the second week. Yeah, and I, you know, it's kind of more I felt that, which was also a good feeling, but I felt that, you know, I can go through the first week without having to play my best tennis, um, which was a nice thing. And I think that's why uh, the top players are, you know, they they win so many matches without playing their best tennis. Uh, but of course, at the end of the uh, later stages of a Grand Slam, you know, I felt that, okay, now I have to be, now I have to be 100% if, if I'm going to beat these guys. Looking at it from the outside, I always feel that if you are going to be like a top five or top 10 or even top 20 guy, it's going to be in the early first few rounds. Maybe because the reason what you're that you said because they're not playing their best, they're going to have an off day. And if you can, if you can just have your right day and manage to keep up with them, that's when obviously the biggest upsets have happened. But I think that's when the biggest chance of beating these guys are. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest difference uh, on myself from being a being ranked top twenty five. Uh, to a couple of years later being a top five player is that I was able to, throughout the year, I was able to to get through so many more matches and win so many more matches without playing my best tennis. I don't think I was necessarily a much better player when I was number four, four in the world compared to when I was number 24 in the world. It was just that it was mentally, a lot for me was mentally, you know, in before I was always so frustrated. I knew how well I could play when I played my best tennis and I was always so frustrated that I couldn't do it every time, every match. Um, and I tried to fight against this all the time. And then, and, and there's like, and that's a fight you can't win. Um, and then I realized, okay, tennis is not about, you know, you don't, it's, you don't get any extra points for winning easy or playing well, uh, the only thing that counts is is if you can find a way to win the match, no matter how you feel on that that particular day. And that helped me a lot. You know, of course, I always wanted to play well and I did everything I possibly could in my preparations um, to to have a chance to play my best tennis. But I think it's the same for everybody. You know, even, even if you're Novak Djokovic or Roger Federer, um, they're not playing their best tennis every match. And it's even if you're an amateur playing tennis once or twice a week, probably you will feel that sometimes you feel great on court. You play really well. And then some days you have really bad days. And that doesn't really change even if you're top player in the world. I was just about to say that no matter what level you are, you obviously want to go out and play at the highest level you've ever played at every single time. And as you say, whether what it gets frustrating i think it's probably more frustrating for the lower for the i was going to say lower ranked maybe lower ranked and amateur guys because they don't understand look as you say you don't get any bonus points your job is to most of the time get more points than the other guy or win the more important points than the other guy 
and yeah, it's it's something that's I think t- tough to understand, even come from an amateur level, where it's a mindset thing. And sometimes you don't care. You just want to go out and try and play your best. But it can get really, it becomes a stressful game then when you're not hitting the power shots and the big serves and, you know, you're not making it look good. But Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like me playing golf these days. You know, sometimes I feel great. You know, I like, oh, I like golf. Maybe I should start more. You know, I play around really well. And then the next day I feel like crap again and I never want to play golf again. So Welcome to my tennis life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's not that bad, but not far, not, not as bad as the golf. So you're going into this Rafa match, you're feeling great, the confidence is high. And did you go out with like one one game plan or did you have multiple game plans ready? No, I was, um, you know, my game plan was, my game plan was to play really aggressive. And that, that was my game. You know, I just felt like, okay, if I'm going to win this match, I can't let Rafa dictate the points. You know, I have to be the one taking the initiative, um, playing, uh, playing deep flat shots and, 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 and really try to push him uh, far away behind the baseline and you know just take some more chances than i than i normally did and and that that day it worked and even mentally i was it was really good as well because i was really mentally there every point you know of course going in to play rafa and best of five you know that if you're going to win this match it will take a lot of energy it will take many hours and a lot of running so i tried to just be in the in the present and just take one one point at a time, you know, no matter the scoreline, um, and and that really worked for me. I remember actually, you know, tie break fourth set. Uh, I got up to six one, I think, with five match point, and that was actually the first time during the whole match I looked up to the scoreboard, and uh, you know, I saw oh, five match point. Now for the first time in the match, I'm probably the favorite. And everybody's favorite. So now it's now I all of a sudden now I have everything to lose. Before I had everything to win. Now I have everything to lose. And I think I lost the first point after that. And I'm I'm really glad that you know he didn't win one or two two more points because then I would start to to shake a little bit. It's it's so crazy how just the pressure shift goes from it's like a seesaw. It, goes from as you say nothing to lose to one point later where you've probably you've so invested in the match you didn't you, I'm sure you knew what score it was but you get lost a little bit it's a tough thing to deal with and we all hear I don't know the, the famous story Goran even Eastridge when he was serving for Wimbledon the racket felt like a ton and I'm sure that's the feeling the legs are feeling heavy and what are you saying to yourself mentally in that situation? When you start to think about it, it's, um, it's, it's, for me, most of the times it was too late, you know, for me it was, and that's maybe one of the hardest things in, in tennis, you know, you just really have to take one point at a time and try not to play, uh, play by the score line. You know, you really have to play your own game and it's not like, it's not like in a sport like football where you can be up three zero and it's, and it's 10 more minutes uh, and you can just, you know, play out the last few minutes. In tennis, you really have to keep playing and playing well until the end, until the last point. You know, a match can always, no matter the scoreline, a match can always, um, a match can always turn. And I think that's, that's a really tough 
part, but it's also one of the the nice parts uh, and the interesting parts about about tennis as a sport. It's a battle, and the last man lives. The last man stands and lives. Yeah. And so, for anybody who hasn't seen this match or the highlights of the match, you have to go to YouTube watch them because you're absolutely hitting the ball as flat as you ever did, I'm sure, and getting some great angles, putting Rafa under pressure. You're hitting, win, like the winners and the down the lines here on the stretch were amazing. I was like, how did he make them? It, it's just, I know it's one, I'm sure you look, it's one of those matches or many, one of many might where everything just comes together. But if you haven't seen the highlights, go check them out. There's, you can watch the whole match. You can watch 10 or 20 minutes of it. It's great, really recommended. But what did you feel like after that, that tie break, the second match point, once you knew, was it Rafa missed a volley? Is that, that's what happened. Rafa, you, you made Rafa play a low volley. He missed it. What was your initial feeling going through your body? I mean, I was extremely happy, of course, but I remember just a few seconds after winning the, uh, the match point, I was, I, I looked at my, uh, all the people in my box and they were standing up cheering like, like I just won the tournament. But the first feeling I got was like, but this was not the final. This was just a fourth round. You know, I have another match match to play in, in just one or two days. And I really tried to not be too happy. And I really wanted to stay focused because I really felt that I don't want to be one of those guys beating beating the top seed just to, you know, be happy and, and uh, come out flat in the next round and lose the next round. Because um, I felt that okay, I, I I'm playing well. I beat Rafa. I can actually win this tournament. It's not going to be easy, but I really have a chance to do it. And it was it was difficult. It was really difficult because basically everything um, everything I did the the coming you know one or two days was just doing interviews and press conferences, and everybody was reminding me about it. So it was mentally it was really difficult. We don't hear about a lot of that, what goes on behind the scenes when you get a big win. Now, you were already, what was your ranking at that stage? Around 20, I would say. Oh, so you you weren't, you weren't top 50, 60, you know, you were, you were a top player back. So it, I think it makes it a bit easier. I know it was Rafa Roland Garros, rather than being a top 80 player who has a win like that, then you can see how they completely fall, fall off the boil. But I think you had a good attitude moving forward saying, look, this isn't the tournament. There's a job to be done here, which that mindset must have really helped you because you played Davidenko and Gonzalez, which are two great wins. Yeah, I, uh, it really helped me. I remember uh, the match uh, against Davidenko in the quarterfinal uh, was really good. And and against Gonzalez also, I started off really well. And But then I got up with the two sets to uh, to love lead and I was like, I was kind of relaxing a little bit, you know, I was tired uh, both mentally and physically and I relaxed a little bit and he came back winning the third set. I still felt that, you know, I, I keep on playing, I'm I, I going to win this match. But all of a sudden I find, I found myself down a break in the fifth set and I told myself, oh Jesus, I'm going to lose this match now. I really have to try to find a way to, to play more aggressive, to to come into this match and I took some chances you know I broke him back and uh, and I started to play really well again which is not easy you know I think one of the most difficult things in tennis is that 
you know, when you're up the set and the break, you lose momentum, you let your opponent in the match again, and then it's so difficult to switch on again. Uh, but I managed to do that in that match. The, the benefits of five sets do allow you to do that a little bit. So you're probably saying it would it would have never went to five sets because it would have been three sets. You would have won it in two sets uh, if it wasn't. But yeah, that's the advantage, I think, for the great players at the slams where they can they can find solutions. They have enough time to figure out a way to win. It's more difficult in a grand slam. You know, it's it's difficult enough to be a top player like you know it's crazy we have three of the maybe three of the best players in history playing at the same time Rafa Novak and and and, and Roger uh, and it's difficult enough to beat them in a the best of three sets but it's way more difficult to do it in a best of five set match yeah yeah which not too many people have done and especially Rafa at Roland Garros only two in you and Novak and so the final against Federer, how was your mindset from being the fearless, hit the ball as flat as I possibly can playing Rafa to playing Roger in the final? Had that flipped? No, I tried, but, you know, mentally it was really tough for me. You know, I played my first Grand Slam final. Everything happened so quickly for me. He played, I don't know how many Grand Slam finals. He was much more experienced. and And I always... You know, I played the top players many times, both of them. Uh, I won a few times. I lost a lot of times, especially against Roger. And to me, it was Roger was always the most difficult opponent to play against. Not necessarily, I'm not saying that he's better than Novak and Rafa, but his game really didn't suit my game. You know, I could, it was always so many times I played against Roger, I came off the court and I felt like, why did I play so poorly today? I know I have to play extremely well to beat him, but I just, it was so difficult for me to play well against him, against against Rafa and against Novak. You know, even though I lost, I could still come off the court and feel it was a good match. I played well. He was just better, better than me today. But against Roger, it was only, I don't know how many times I played him, but it was just, you know, a couple of times I felt that I played played well. And it's because of him, you know, he makes you like, he makes you, that's one of his strengths, you know, he makes you uncomfortable on court. Yes, was it, I'm sure many people have come off playing him thinking they have a chance and they just don't understand what he's after doing to them. But you did a year later, you, you got a great win, you broke his semi-final streak, Grand Slam streak. So you you figured out a way. Yeah, and that was probably uh, my best match uh, in Roland Garros. I think, you know, I played really well against Rafa, but against Roger, um, I think I played even better. And it was, I was a little bit lucky also because it was a rainy day, heavy conditions and, and Roger plays really fast. And that's what, and I think that's why I had problems, you know, with my, with my uh, long swings, my big strokes. I tried to put pressure on him, but the ball came back so fast all the time. So I didn't have time to really play heavy and deep. But when it was slower conditions, it was easier for me. I got a little bit more extra time and I could hit hard enough to hit throw through those those um, heavy conditions. So it was the perfect perfect day for me to beat a player like like Roger that day. You use the conditions to your advantage. And what do you get a call? Does Dominic team ring and says, "Look, I'm playing Rafa in Roland Garros final. What can I do 
what would you do if you're playing Rafa today? How would you play him? I know his game has evolved as well. Especially on clay, you have to play aggressive. You know, now he's, he's probably uh, even better to take the initiative. I think that Rafa, um, throughout the last few years, uh, he he became more aggressive. You know, he tries to take the ball a little bit early, put a little bit more pressure uh, on the opponent. Back then, he was playing a little bit more, a little bit more defensive. But he was he was actually he improved many things during the years. But I would say ten years ago, he was probably faster. He was moving better, so he could play a little bit more defensive. Uh, now he, I don't think he's moving as well as before, but he improved many other things. You know, he improved his serve a lot. He plays even more aggressive. He can take the ball a little bit earlier and flatten it out, which he couldn't couldn't do back then. So that's one of the things I'm really impressed um, with uh, talking about Rafa. You know, he managed to um, to change his game and improve his game. Uh, to meet, you know, the new type of tennis that is coming up. And what would be the game plan in your head to get the win over five sets? I mean, I would, uh, I would, of course, play aggressive. You have to, uh, you have to play deep and uh, use uh, use the shots down the line a lot. You know, both forehand and backhand. And I would, you know, put pressure to his forehand and then try to. Uh, try to come in or or hit the winner to to his back end. Aggressive, aggressive. Nothing's changed. You'd be still out there hammering away. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's there's not many many players who can actually you know stay there for five six hours uh, having long rallies with Rafa. I think he's just he's just outstanding. You know, a few times I saw Novak do it. You know, he beat Rafa pretty much on just being being stronger and and more physically physically fit but it's it's extremely difficult to beat him that way it's it's rare and another question if if you saw a next gen guy Sitsipas gets to a final gives you a call what what advice do you give a young player who is reaching their first grand slam final that you learned from Roland Garros playing Federer I mean I would not try I would tell them to not to try to not see it as their only chance or seeing it uh, seeing it as uh, too big you know for me it was semi-finals even the Grand Slam was big but all of a sudden I was in the final it felt like it was a 10 times bigger match and um, I just wish I knew that I would get more chances First time I was in the final, I felt like this is my only chance. I have one chance to win a Grand Slam. But, you know, if you reach a Grand Slam, uh, most of the times, if you're healthy uh, and have a long career, you will have another chance. And this is the same with these guys, you know, as you said, you, you mentioned Tsitsipas, you know, he will probably play many Grand Slam finals and he will get the chance again and just try to be relaxed and see it as any other match great and moving on 12 months later you find yourself in the final you did the great win against Federer Berdic and you find yourself playing Rafa what was the mindset coming into that match 
I mean, I, I tried to have the same mi- mindset as, uh, as the year before. Um, I remember first, first year I was feeling okay physically, mentally was tough. The next year I was, I felt way more prepared. You know, I felt like, okay, now there's another chance I can, I, f- I felt that I could, I could do it. But at the same time, I felt like I was more physically tired uh for some reason uh the second year and um it was difficult to keep up with Rafa when you're not 100% physically um i wasn't injured you know but i was just tired and i tried to push myself i tried to take every point and then i got uh, he won the first set and then it was it was really it was really uphill after that for me you know it was it was it was difficult and he just he just played well, and I couldn't I couldn't get to the level um, which I knew I had to 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 have a chance to beat him. You really need to get on top early and establish yeah. yourself, and probably yeah. get some inner confidence from that. Well, exactly, that's so important when, especially when you play these guys, the top guys, you know, to get the good start. It's so important, both for for yourself, but also for them. You know, you see when they get when they get off to a good start, they just. Uh, push the accelerator and 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 play even better. You know they won't let you in. I yeah I don't know the stat. Well, sorry, I hear the stats sometimes on the TV. I don't know offhand, but when those guys win the first set, they're they're more most of the time untouchable. Yeah, which which yeah. is madness. So so you you kept playing. You had some great results. Uh, I think was it that year? Federer beat you in was or the year before in the US and at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, I think so. I had some. I remember reaching uh, the quarterfinals in Grandland quite a few times, and then and every time I I got to play Roger or, or or Rafa, it was always always the toughest draw possible. You came through a few times, but so you're playing you're playing great tennis, and then all of a sudden you don't start feeling well. Yeah, I think basically the whole. 2011 the whole that year or actually at the end of 2010 I started to feel you know I was very I was tired mentally and physically I was you know I wasn't enjoying it as much you know I was living my dream for my whole life my dream was since I ever since I started to play tennis my dream was to to become a professional player and and become one of the top players in the world and I was there and but still I didn't feel like I was I was enjoying it as much as as I thought I would um and it's I mean that's why also one of one of the things I'm so impressed of look at the top guys you know they they have been able they won everything you possibly can win so many times and they are still there you know they're still hungry they're still motivated and they are really being chased all the time. Everybody wants to beat them. Uh, these are the guys to beat. And when I was number four in the world, I, for some reason, I felt like, okay, now there's only three players in the world that is that it's okay for me to lose to. I, it's not, it's not good, but it's it's okay. And then, so basically, every match I played, it was just like okay if i win it's it's normal if i lose it's um it's i did something bad it's a disaster uh, and mentally it was tough and a lot changed for me also you know a lot of different 
new things come in. There was so much more media, so much more attention from sponsors, from agents, so much more things to do outside the court as well. And it all happened really fast for me. Some people just don't like doing the media work where they're dragged around here and there. And and that can add, obviously was adding a strain to you. I really like to play tennis. I love to play tennis. But when you're a top player, there's so much more to to everything than just playing tennis, you know. And I, I never really liked the attention, you know. I just love to compete. I just love to play tennis and win matches. And uh, all of a sudden, there was so much more to it. And it was it was difficult, you know. I started to put a lot more pressure on myself and I felt that it was a lot more pressure um, from from other people, from media, as I said, you know, from tournaments, you go to smaller tournaments, you get paid well to play there and they really expect you to uh, to perform. And I was never that guy, you know, who could play a smaller tournament and not give it my 100%. I always, and that's one of the things I'm really proud of during my career. I always, no matter if it was, if it was a warm-up or a practice session or a Grand Slam finals, I always gave 100%. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. What is the feeling if you're paid to, to you get an appearance fee at those tournaments? I'm not sure if it ever happened to you and you lose early. Do you get the bad looks? Yeah, I, I, I remember I lost early somewhere, I think in Marseille one year or I lost like in the quarterfinals or something, but I felt so ashamed, you know. I, I felt that, okay, this tournament, they've been selling tickets, they've been uh, getting sponsors uh, because of the top players and they expect them to be in the final. And I was I was feeling so bad, you know, I was ashamed. I always wanted to, to go to the tournament director and say, okay, I'm sorry, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I managed to go back the next year and win the tournament and that... Uh, <laughs> That was a much, much better feeling, yeah. And so the pressure you start feeling, had you ever felt that pressure before in your junior days or early career days, or was it totally new? I mean, yeah, I think I, I always felt a little bit of a pressure. I was always a little bit nervous, even my junior days, you know, before a match. Or, but this was, this was different because this was not only before the matches. This was like a constant thing that, was there in the back of my head all the time and uh, and after a while you know I I started to feel a little bit run down it started with those symptoms that I wasn't enjoying it that much and I started to get a lot of infections you know a lot of I would have a cold for for a few days or a week and then I felt okay for a week then I have another infection you know fever sore throat and I took all the tests everything looked normal and so both I think both physically and mentally, my body started to started to react in a bad way. 
do you know exactly you had glandular fever, mononucleosis? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Monon, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. The kissing disease, as it's called as well. Uh, so do you think that was brought on by all this pressure you were being put under and putting yourself under? Yeah, I was really run down and I I think my immune system was 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 weak because of all the pressure, mental pressure and also all the hard training and all the travels. And I got the mono and it wasn't that bad in the beginning. It just felt like, you know, another cold, a little bit of fever, a little bit of sore throat. And I kept playing with it for a while. And, and I think that when I got the mono, that was all of a sudden, that was... That was it. That was too much for my body to handle. And um, the symptoms came after, straight after Bosta. The symptoms came really strong and I was sick for a long time. And after that, it was like, even though, you know, the fever disappeared, uh, I, I wasn't feeling sick anymore. You know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't train. I just couldn't handle any stress. So I just, I just hit the wall and it felt like it happened basically overnight. But now looking back, I could see that, you know, I was slowly getting there, uh, you know, every day a little bit more and more for a long, for a long time. I'm sure when it's, a, it's hard to see, um, look, as you say, you you want to play tennis, be the best you can. So that's all your focus is in there. And I'm sure if somebody tells you, Robin, you have to stop playing for a week or two or three, what are you going to tell them? Yeah, exactly. No you know, I felt that, no, I felt like, you know, to skip a tournament, I felt like, no, it can happen. I have to play, you know, I have points to defend. To skip one or two tournaments, I felt like, oh, it's a disaster. It can happen. I have to go. Um, and it's also, you know, during my, my, during my whole life, you know, as a kid, as a junior, you know, you, you practice everything, you, you, you improve your shots, you improve everything, you try to do everything as good as you can and you have good coaches, but no one ever even mentioned to me like what it's like to what you have to be prepared of if, if, if you reach your dream to become a pro. Um, so when it all happened, you know, in my mind, it was just, my whole junior career, my whole life was just a road to becoming a professional tennis player. Uh, and, you know, I felt that that was the end goal. But all of a sudden I, I had reached my end goal and I realized, okay, this is not like, I'm not in heaven. Now it, now it actually starts. Now I really have to perform for real. Um, and I think it's a shame. I think that's one of the things, you know, coaches and, and maybe parents also in one way are missing out a little bit. You know, if you have a kid that is talented and want to try to become pro in, 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 in any sport, you just have to try to speak to them early and try to prepare them what it's like if you reach your, your goal. Well, I, I think it helps, obviously, if you know people who've been there and done that. And many times tennis players let's say for Ireland for example there hasn't been any top 100 players here never mind top 20 top 10 top 5 so it's good that Sweden has so many great players that you know I'm, I'm sure you can get calls from parents or somebody knows somebody it's a small enough country where you can give advice or do webinars or presentations or I'm sure they're on the Junior Davis Cup team they build up so I think it helps having great mentors who've been there and done that where you can tell them as we mentioned earlier in the show that what's expected of them 
and afterwards. So how important is it to have something else in your life other than tennis also in there, be it, I don't know, be it Pass again, as an example, who's interested in photography and filming and how much does that help? I think, you know, that's maybe, that's one of the regrets uh, I have looking back on my career. You know, I just wish I, I just wish I would have like something else in my life to, to do or to, to fall back on or, you know, it could be anything like a hobby or something, because I felt that the better I became, you know, the more my life was tennis. You know, I was living in my my own little tennis bubble. You know, I thought that's that's what I have to do. You know, every decision I took, every everything was based on is this good or bad for my tennis? And it's I mean, I think in the short term, it's good. You know, that's called being serious. You know, I do everything to become better in tennis. But if you want to have a long and healthy career, you just have to make room for something else and to have periods of times where you can really rest mentally. You know, I I did my training schedule. I knew exactly when I would train and how much and rest. But, you know, if you rest, you can lay on the couch or, or or. uh, or not train and of course you would rest physically but mentally if you still think about the next match if you still think about oh in two weeks I have a uh, I have to defend a lot of points you, you're not resting mentally and I think the easiest way to to it's it's so difficult to just say oh don't think about it think about something else it's not going to work but if you have something else that you're interested in it could be anything you know me myself you know i think i should have during my career i should i think i should have studied something maybe online and and in an early uh an early in my career i just should have start to think about what i would do after my career it's tough maybe the atp tour the itf need to do better education on upcoming players and maybe they do already i'm not sure but yeah that, that's some good that's some good advice there but if you're so invested in the sport, I can see where your enthusiasm just drives you. Tennis, 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 tennis. And it can be, it comes down to your personality as well. Yeah. And for me, it was like, I felt like, oh, if I, if I don't think about tennis all the time, if I'm not 100% focused all the time, um, I'm not serious enough. Uh, but maybe it's like the other way. I My philosophy now is that, you know, every time you're on court, for practice or for a match, you just have to be 100% focused. Every shot is important. But then it's as important as that is that what you do during during um, during your free time or, or between practices and matches, you just have to find a way to relax because when you train, you break down your body. It's and it's when you when you rest, that's when you get better. You know, um, the body builds up itself again. And if you never really allow the body to have uh, periods of rest physically and mentally, it's not going to work in the in the long run. Yeah, you get that gradual, as you say, it's hard to look at it when you're in it. But if you look back and you get the gradual burnout that happens. You played your last unknown match in 2011 against David Ferrer. Probably Dave Ferrer was happy to see you not play anymore because you seemed to beat him a lot. What was it like not being able to be competitive, be out there on the biggest stadiums competing and knowing you can beat these guys? In the beginning, it was like I was so sick. I was feeling so bad. Like, so I didn't think a lot about tennis. It was just like, that's when I really understood, okay, 
tennis is maybe not the most important thing is life in life it's 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 your health you know so in the beginning i was just like oh, i have to feel better but when i started to feel a little bit better you know i i tried to watch some tennis and i saw all those those players i had been playing against uh you know just a year a year a year and a half earlier winning tournaments you know still being out there and it was tough you know i didn't watch any tennis for the first two or three years actually after my after my last match i just couldn't do it it was it was too painful wow and you mentioned you mentioned online various articles like the anxiety the panic attacks yeah how how did you cope what tools did you train yourself with to be able to cope with that and move on and to recover uh, I mean, uh, patience, um, you know, in the beginning I was just looking for something, you know, to see a doctor who could give me a pill or an injection and I would feel great the day after and, and start moving on with my life. But after a while, you know, I realized that, uh, this is going to take time. I just have to be patient and try to change my whole mindset and my, um, my whole life. Basically it's a, it's a life journey to recover and, Sometimes I feel like I'm, it's, it's difficult to say that I'm grateful for what happened to me. You know, of course, I wish it would never happen. But in one way, I'm like, I don't think I would be the person I am today if I, if I hadn't gone through all those, you know, seven, eight really tough years. Um, so in one way, I'm, 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 I'm a little bit grateful. Uh, again, because I learned a lot. I'm a completely different person uh, now compared to when I when I played. You sound I I don't know what you were like before. You sound a bit more relaxed now, mellow. Would that be true? Yeah, I think so. I try to not take everything uh, so serious, you know, and of course it's easier when I when I'm not playing anymore. Uh and um, you know one uh, one thing that really helped me maybe the thing that that helped me the most was you know to talk to I had two friends one uh, who was a really good triathlete one of the best in the world he 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 had been through uh, a similar thing you know it took him four or five years to recover and i spoke a lot to him and also another friend who, who didn't do sport but he was just having uh, working too much with his companies for many years and he got burned out himself and i talked to them a lot and again, you know, it's um, now speaking to someone that has been been through it, and they were both they were both healthy again and feeling great. It helped me a lot because, of course, there was many days where I thought, okay, this is never gonna be good. I'm gonna have a shit life for the rest of my life, and that was maybe the the most, or that was for sure the most difficult thoughts to 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 handle and to live with. I came across something online and we can cut this out if you want, but there's a quote from you that where you said, I Googled how to kill myself. Yeah, I mean, there was many, many days where I felt terrible and it's not like you get a bigger understanding for people that actually that actually do it and they, they can't take it anymore. Before, I, I couldn't understand, you know, when you heard about someone doing that and you were like, why? Why? doesn't anyone want to live it was just I couldn't understand but I felt like I was feeling so bad and I, of course you want to live that's the only thing you want to do but it's like you feel like you have no choice you start to doubt that it's 
that you're never going to feel well again. And you're like, but there's no choice. I can't live like this. It's impossible because every day is like a torture, you know? But I think, you know, also one of the things that made me, uh, my mindset from the tennis actually, you know, the things that took me uh, to this place also helped me to, to, um, to come out of it. You know, I was very stubborn, you know, I never gave up during my career. And I, you know, I told myself, okay, a professional career, it's tough, but it's nothing compared to what I'm going through now. And, you know, I just, I just tried to stay tough, tried to stay as positive as I could. And then, and, you know, just take one day at a time. Cause I remember days when, when a minute felt like a year, you know, I just, I woke up in the morning. If I, if I even slept anything, you know, in the morning, I would ask myself, how in the world am I gonna, gonna make through this day? You know, how, how am I gonna get through this day until, you know, evening and I could go sleep again? It's, it was re, and, and it's like, and it's one day, two days, and then you have this for a hundred days in a row. Then it's, it gets extremely, extremely tough. I can't imagine how tough that is. And like, how important for you was the talk? And we, we hear a lot about mental issues in all over the world. And, you know, people don't want to talk. And if they can just open up for you, how important was the talking part for your journey to being where you are today? I mean, for me, as I, as I told you, my two friends who helped me, they've been through similar things. Uh, it helped me a lot. You know, I, I can't thank them enough. Just, just speaking to me basically almost every day when I, when I was at, at my worst place. And since I feel like it helped me so much, it's so easy for me to speak about it. Maybe, you know, I could help someone. I know how tough it is. I, you, you wouldn't wish anyone this, you know, it's, it's the worst thing it could possibly ever happen to you. Uh, at least it was for me. And if I could help, help anyone, it would, it would make me so happy. It's, it's just so easy for me. And, and the thing is, you know, I've been talking to, to quite a few retired players that, that after their career, they told me they've been struggling with the same things. And it's so much more common than, than you can, than you and me can ever imagine, you know, so many players, they retire, you know, I know I retired because of a knee injury or whatever, but the real reason was something else. And they just, it's so much easier to say, no, my, my shoulder is bad. I can't play anymore. I have to retire than to say like, oh, mentally, I feel like, like crap, you know, I, I, I can't play anymore. So I, I just wish this stigma, you know, would go away because I think that really would help so many, so many players and so many people around the world. I think slowly people are talking a bit more. The more people like you doing a great job and talking about these things, like it's, it's amazing. So I think that is really a big part of it. My wife is going to listen to this episode and she's going to say, oh, he became more patient. How she's going to say, well, maybe you should have asked him, how did he become more patient? <laughs> Any tips uh, on becoming yeah. more patient? No, it's just that, you know, I tried for so many, for so long time. I tried as soon as I felt a little bit better, I would try to go back to train. I would, but every time I had huge setbacks and, you know, I was so stubborn. I really wanted to come back, but every time it was just a fight I couldn't win. 
So I just had to, you know, in one way, give up and just, you know, let it take, uh, let it take the time, the time my body needed. You know, there was nothing I could do. And also, you know, it's just now I can, I can train. I feel, I probably, I would say I feel much better now than even before this, this thing happened to me. I feel great, but sometimes I feel like I don't handle stress uh, as as good as I did, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, there's like, um, it, it, sometimes I feel like there's still a little bit, you know, and I, I don't think it would ever, it would ever be as before. And I don't really wish uh, to be as before because obviously I lived, uh, even though I thought I lived the, the most healthiest life uh, ever, you know, I was training, I was eating well, apparently it wasn't healthy. Uh, now I think I just have a, a more healthier approach approach to life in in, in general, and um, yeah, more balanced life, you know. And and I don't know how I learned it. It's probably because of all the setbacks I had, and then there was no no other way than than just changing mindset. But it took so many years. It was not something that you know I learned, or or it was not something that happened overnight. You know, it came gradually. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I I wouldn't be the most pay. I'm not the most patient person in the world, but it's something I'm. I think of you know when the moment arises where you just say to yourself, Fabio, just be more patient here. And it takes train and takes time. And some days are good, some days are bad. But it, I think it's something you have to be aware of that you're trying to work on, and that's a good first positive step. To be aware of it, yeah, I lived my life. I was not aware at all. You know, even though I wasn't feeling great uh, at the end of my career if someone would have asked me how do you feel i would i would tell them i feel great and i would believe in it but now looking back i could see that i wasn't you know for since you know mid 2010 until you know when i had to re- when i played my last match mid in the summer 2011 i wasn't feeling good but you know i thought i was just pushing everything everything away it was only one way for me and it was forward no matter what happened no matter the the answer i had was just to try to push a little bit harder and it works so many times it works and it worked for so many years but i reached a point where where it didn't work anymore yeah uh, it's 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 i'm just sorry going to say thanks for telling me about that it's really interesting and it's just doing so much for other people who have these issues they should speak out to people and when did rs tennis come along in this journey by the way did that help a lot like when was the first day did you decide i need to start a tennis company how did it come about <laughs> yeah um well um it was probably uh, in 2013, 14, I started to feel, uh, you know, I wasn't feeling great, but I was feeling a lot better. You know, I could actually start to to have a life and start to think about, okay, what what do I want to do now? You know, I want to do something. And of course, I wanted to do something in tennis. Tennis was basically my whole life since I was four years old. And I didn't want to travel and then or I didn't want to, I wasn't ready to become a coach or anything. So as I, as we spoke about before, I was very picky about material and I was very interested. And one thing came up in my mind. I remember at the press conference somewhere we were playing with, I don't know, a ball and many people complained about the ball. And then a journalist asked me, oh, but what is the best ball? What? And I couldn't really come up with an answer because 
there's there was a lot of good tennis balls, but with the racket, with the strings, everything, I knew exactly what I thought. This is the best for me. But with tennis balls, I couldn't come up with a good answer. So this this thing popped up in my head, and I I decided to try to see if I could develop a ball myself that I thought was the best ball, you know, ever. And um, I'm pretty happy now that I didn't know back then, like how much work it would take, you know, <laughs> I did this all myself in the beginning, sourcing for factories, play testing, everything, you know, it took basically a year and a, a year and a half before I, before I had the finished product. Uh, and then um, a friend of mine who worked, you know, he, he worked, uh, he had a business life where he worked many years for IBM, you know, he's been working with companies and uh, he told myself, so what are you going to do now? You're going to start a company. I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I gave out, you know, balls to my friends, even some tour players, they tried it and the feedback was great. Everybody said, oh, it's great. It feels great. It's a great ball. And I said, yeah, of course, you know, I, I, I knew, I, I knew it. And he said, you should start a company. And my friend said, and I, and I was like, I don't know how to do that. And he helped me with, we set up a, we started off with setting up a web page with just it was just one one page where it says like uh, you could you could sign up for inquiries and and all of a sudden you know we had we had questions from so many different people you know we wall street journal everything from wall street journal to just one person in india saying hey i want to buy a can of balls and and that's when we decided okay we we will try to um to do a serious company out of this and he quit his job and then started to work full time with um with RS and now you know 6 years later we're we're six we're actually seven people now seven employed working with a company and we're growing all the time and it's uh, now it's for real which is uh, which is nice you know i learned so much during these years and uh, i had a really great time it's not Magnus, is it? It's Magnus, yeah. That's who I always dealt with with RS Tennis. So great guy. Yeah. So he's uh, yeah he works with a company. He's a co-owner and he's the CEO. So he works he works full time with a company. Yeah, my my shout out to Magnus here, who was great. As I said, they were part of the Functional Tennis of the Year. We're going four years now, and we definitely start promoting RS Tennis back then. The balls I thought I thought were great. There was the black one. There's the black tube and the white tube. Yeah, yeah. I can't... Re it's been a while since I used them, Rob, but I preferred one to the other. And for a long okay. time I used... I can't remember. I don't want to say which one I preferred because I'm not 100% sure. But We'll send you some more for you to try. I keep trying. Well, we're locked. I haven't played tennis in two months, so probably a waste sending me balls, right? But no, we're back open now. But also I used to use, I still have some, I used for a good while, maybe for about two years, I used your Leon string. I just like, I just like the Leon. They kept telling me, no, use the Paris one, use the Paris. And I was like, no, I like Leon. And I thought it worked for me. And I don't use it at the moment now. With testing all string centers, we, um, there's something different every day, which I don't recommend to people, by the way, because your <laughs> arm falls apart when you're testing different strings. But no, the balls were great. I was really impressed for first stab, for your first stab at them. I know now you've made different types. There's the orange tin. So you have the black tin, the white tin. Is there an orange tin as well? Orange is for, you know, it's orange for kids, kids okay, balls, okay, uh, green okay. and orange uh, editions. And we have uh, 
we have different, well, we have a club ball for academies and clubs, which is a longer lasting ball. We have, you know, some countries, uh, we sell the high altitude ball. Um, so we have quite a few models now. Well, that's, that that's a lot. I know running all these skews can minimum quantities aren't aren't small. It's a proper you're shifting a lot of a lot of balls, and also your coach bag always gave a bit of interest on functional tennis. I'd never seen it before. Is that something you developed? Yeah, uh, I did it together with the with the factories. You know, it also took a lot of time. Uh, and it's a, I use it a lot uh, when I coach on court. It's great. You can you can actually play with it. You know, I, I really wanted to have something, you know, that was always close to me, no matter what side I were on the court. Because sometimes, especially when you when you coach junior players or kids, you know, you just have to run over to their side and show them something and you always have the balls with you. And you can also play, even if you play with a good player, you could also play with it. Um, I just, I just always tell customers that it's, it's, it's one of the best tools a coach can have. You just have to be man enough or secure enough to wear it because sometimes it kind of looks a little bit funny, but I don't care anymore. I use it all the time. People listen, head over to RS Tennis and the website rs-tennis.com and check out the the coach bag. It sits on your bag. You can walk around the court or move around the court, have balls with you all the time. And plus you're not tripping over or kicking over any uh, baskets, which, which happens quite a bit. But no, and how much work, Robin, actually goes into, I know you've talked about a year and a half developing balls, but how many iterations of tennis balls did you go through to get to the final ball of a certain series? Oh, in the beginning, it was probably a few hundred uh, prototypes, even more. Uh, now it's easier because, you know, in the beginning, uh, speaking to the factories, you know, I didn't know anything about producing a tennis ball. I just knew how I wanted it to feel. So if I would tell the factory, you know, I want it to feel a little bit more like this. I want it to be a little bit lighter. I want it to be, they were just saying, okay, but uh, they were just speaking, you know, numbers and density and everything. And I had no, n- no idea what they were, and they, and, and they didn't know what I was saying, you know, cause, cause I came from a playing point of view. And so I think both me and the guys at, at the factory, they, they learned a lot. So now I know much more about about the process of of, uh, of um, making tennis balls, which which makes it easier. You know, we kind of speak a little bit more of the same same language now. And what is your most highest grade tournament specific ball? Are they used at a ATP Tour tournament? Yes, uh, we uh, we have some. We have Stockholm Open. We've been they've been using the ball here in Sweden for at the ATP tournament for four or five years now. Uh, we used it in the Memphis ATP tournament. Uh, Which and, ball uh, is that? They use uh, the tour edition, which is the white cam uh, on both tournaments. And we signed uh, we signed the contract actually for this year. Now this um, this tournament, uh, they couldn't play the tournament, but uh, hopefully next year we will have one more ATP tournament. We have a few challengers. We have some um, a lot of futures, a lot of. Um, 25k uh, 50k on the women's side so quite a few and we're the official ball for the Swedish Tennis Federation and some other federations so we're growing a lot you know we're getting more and more people on in the company which is uh, which is great and and tell me 
your string? What is your favorite string out of your collection? Uh, I play uh, difficult. You know, Leon was the first first string I I developed or we created, uh, and I played I played Luxilon for for most of my career, the uh, Alu Power, and I liked that string. But one thing, sometimes I felt that it was a little bit too too stiff and uh, I felt that it was losing tension way too quickly. So I wanted to develop a string that had a little bit more control, a little bit softer, and that would keep the the, um, the tension maintenance longer. So that's that's when I did when I developed the, the RS Leon. Then the next one is is more of a more of a spin string. You know, uh, it's a little bit stiffer. Uh, it has an octagon profile. Uh, you get a more a lot more spin uh, on the ball. Then we have a, a synthetic gut as well. I never really played with gut. You know, the the real gut is a small, really small market and. Me myself, I could I couldn't really play with it. I never played with it, so we decided to to try to develop a string that was not real gut. It was synthetic gut, but it was as close as you can get to real natural gut. And that's our third string. It's called RS New York. So all of the names is from from places where I played and have good good memories during my my career. In Lyon, I won my first title in Paris, of course, two finals in Grand Slams, and I won the Paris Paris uh, Masters indoors. Yeah. And New York was always a, a great place uh, to play US Open. I love that tournament. Nice. Thanks for the breakdown. I actually got mixed up. It was the Paris string I used to use. Okay. And Magnus was saying, no, you got to use the Lyon string. Uh, for me, I think I found the Lyon a bit stiffer i've taught you can actually try a mixed you know i elaborate a little bit and i tried a, a mix so i would play with the um, with the paris on the mains and the leon on the crosses it's 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 a great it's a great it's, combination it's, it's, it's one to try and you've also been obviously you've talked about paddle at the start of this but paddle has become a big part of rs tennis as well how do you see paddle grown in europe because you're you're working in it I mean, in Sweden, it's it's crazy. It's probably the the country in the whole world where paddle is growing, uh, growing the most. You know, I heard that four hundred four hundred people, four hundred thousand people in Sweden are are playing paddle at least once a week now, which is a lot. You know, we're a country with ten million people, and there's coming up new courts every day. Everybody starts to play, and I was like. In the beginning, I was like, no, no, this paddle is just for, for people that can play tennis. So it took, it took quite a, quite a long time for me to start to try. And then, of course, like most of people, I liked it. It was, it was a lot of fun. And I realized, but this is, this is almost, you play with almost tennis balls. And I knew that, of course, as I told you, I knew it all about, uh, all about how to create tennis balls. And then we decided to try to develop a paddle ball. And the thing is, in, in the base of the companies with the tennis is that I am the one developing with my experience from, from being a, a player, I'm developing all the tennis products. And, and that's like the foundation or the base of the company. And with paddle, it was different. You know, I, I, I love to play paddle, but I'm an amateur. So instead of me developing the ball myself, only, you know, we, we spoke to, to some of the top players in Sweden, some top players in the world, and they all helped us 
from their playing experience to develop um, the paddle ball. Nice. And you also, you sell paddle rackets as well. So it, it's a, obviously it's a great business to be in right now and to grow with so many more people playing throughout Europe and the world. Yeah, it's it's great. You know, we in Sweden, we work probably more with 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 paddle than than with tennis right now it's more demands from from paddle players than from tennis players uh and then of course tennis is is bigger for us you know because tennis is is a way way bigger sport globally you know you don't play paddle yet in 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 in, in so many countries but i think you know in um, in a few years time you know paddle will grow even more and it will become a, a even bigger sport yeah i think so I think so. Yeah. It's here no, to stay. It, it is. You're right. I, I think you're riding on a on a wave that has a long, it's going to peak in a long time. So I think that's going to be really good. And tell me, how hard is it to grow a tennis brand? That's what I'm trying to do in a way. We still haven't figured out the right message four years later, a bit of everything. But for you, just from a product point of view, and you are a famous tennis player with great contacts and... But how hard has it been for you to grow? I mean, it's it's difficult uh, in one way, uh, but in one way it's not. You just have to, it's like with any other thing. If you want to become a professional tennis player, you just have to put in the hard work and the many hours. And I think it's the, the same with, with trying to grow a company. We did so many mistakes along the way, you know, uh, it's been, we solved so many problems and I think, you know, the value of the company or how, how good your company is going to be, it's the sum of all the problems you solved. You don't have to be the smartest guy all the time. You just have to, you just have to like it and you just have to put in the, the hours and do the hard work. Got to show up every day. Yeah, and try different things. You know, try your ideas. I would say uh, not every idea is great, but uh, you don't know until you try it. And it's it's not the end of the world if you make some mistakes, if you have some setbacks. You know, it's um, what you do after. It's it's what's really important and how you solve those those problems and how you correct those mistakes. Nice, thank you for that. And last question, RS Tennis. What's the future plans? I mean, we we are trying to to grow all the time. Right now, we're um, we're trying to um, to work more on on our online business. In in many countries, you know, we sell a lot to to distributors, and we also want to 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 sell ourselves directly from our warehouse to the end consumer. Uh, that's something we're trying to build. Um, and Paddle is growing a lot. You know, we work a lot with Paddle in Sweden and also in the Nordic countries. But, you know, tennis will always be the core of, 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 of the company. You know, tennis is the first sport and we are a tennis company. So um, it's, uh, we, we have big plans and it's going in the right uh, direction, uh, which is great. But um, it's, again, it's a lot of hard work. And uh, we are, as I said, we're seven people now. We... I think we um, ideally we we should have we should be like twelve, thirteen uh, employees because there's there's a lot of work, but we're not there yet. But hopefully one day. You're a slave driver. You're working them hard. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, yeah, we all work hard, you know, and all the people in the company, they're really great, great persons and they have the same mindset as me, you know, they, they, they like it and they're not afraid to work hard. And I work, I work pretty much full time myself now or sometimes even more than full time. Um, maybe one of the hardest parts for me is, you know, now when we're growing, I can't be involved in every little detail as I were in the beginning. And I remember when we employed, you know, our first one or two persons, it was like, okay, I have to trust them. I, I have to, I can't be involved in every little detail. I don't have time. You know, I let them do their thing. And I was scared in the beginning, but after a while I realized, well, they do, they do an even better job than, than me, you know? So that was hard in the beginning, but now, now it's, it's much easier. I think it's the only way you're going to grow, isn't it? Really, yeah, if you yeah. trust the people. But that's, I'm just going to end this on a few fan questions. We've actually covered most of them throughout the conversation. So th- there's not that many of them. One is that I probably should have asked you, how that uh, you just touched on there as well, how do you manage being Davis Cup captain, running and trying to grow your tennis and paddle company and have two kids, wife? What's your secret? Well, sometimes I feel like it's really difficult to manage, but in one way, you know, this, um, this COVID, uh, pandemic, uh, has made it a little bit more easier because, you know, Davis Cup was postponed. There uh, wasn't many tournaments, but I feel like I like it so much. And it's kind of the same thing, you know, coaching someone I learn every day, working for their federation. We have uh, RS Tennis as a good, cooperation with the Swedish Tennis Federation with the official ball it's all it all kind of feels like it's one work for me of course it's two different things but uh, it's um, it's one work and then I always try to go I go up early and I do some work uh, after I leave the kids at school and then you know picking them up at four they go to do some sports and I always try to be with them a few hours uh, until they go to bed around eight or nine and then I work you know, two, three more hours at home. So you need to find ways to make it work. But I feel like as long as I enjoy it, I don't feel any pressure. I just, most of 99% of the time, it's just pure, pure joy. So that that makes it a lot easier. Great. And something we hear a lot about is excuses from players saying, oh, there was no clay courts in my company when I grew up. How can I be professional? You grew up in Sweden, indoor tennis. It's cold, no light there most of the year. How did you, what was your secret to making clay one of your best surfaces coming from a background where you probably never played on it? Yeah, it was it was really difficult for me. I remember in the beginning of my career, I hated to play on clay. You know, I couldn't move on it. Uh, I just felt like I couldn't hit winners. Um, but I started to play a little bit more better and better. I got a better understanding on how to win points on clay. But of course, I think that I, I played my best tennis maybe indoors. And that's normal because I grew up playing nine months every year indoors. Um, but I always tried to not find any excuses. It was both good and bad. You know, for me, maybe it was... It could have been good sometimes to find an excuse. I was always blaming myself. And uh, there's one of my old coaches said, Robin, there's so many, he called them if players. There are so many if players out there. 
oh, if I could have played more on clay, if I uh, didn't get injured, if I then I would have been good. Like, and there's, I just felt like there was so many if players, uh, and I didn't want to be one of those if, if players. So I just really tried to to see where I were and and try to not blame anything and not and only blame myself. If I didn't win, I wasn't good enough. You know, no matter no matter why I wasn't good enough, I just wasn't good enough. I just tried to become better. Nice. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, two more questions here. When is the comeback happening and are you going to play Masters? Uh, well, maybe I've been thinking about playing a little bit, you know, on the on the seniors tour, playing some of the Grand Slams. It's nice to come back. Are uh, you not too young for that? Uh, no, 30, <laughs> maybe they changed the rules now. 35, uh, I think there's an age, uh, age limit. Uh, so maybe I played there, uh, but you know, for so many years, I tried to come back. I wanted to come back and play again, professional tennis, but in 2015, I think it was, I, I realized that, okay, this will take, take a few years more before I find, before I'm finally hundred percent. And then it's going to be too late. You know, the competitions is so tough. You know, if you didn't play regularly for five six years it's going to be too tough to come back and also i think that you know if you've been a top top five player i don't think that if i would come back being you know a challenger player or being ranked within top 100 which is great which is you know not many can do that you know compared to what i was used to it will not be as fun i think for me you'd be back having more mental problems probably (laughs) maybe yeah yeah. Uh, Okay, sorry, I said two, but another two. What was the, do you know the unstrung weight of your racket? Uh, It weighs 363 grams. Is that with or without strings? With strings. Wow, with or without, that's heavy. And you're still playing with that? That's that's crazy. And it feels, I think the balance, um, you know, it's the balance is pretty high. So it's it's high and uh, the weight is is on the top. So that's the swing weight is is extremely high. And that's why it feels even a little bit more heavy than it actually is. I've... it must be so hard to play with one the Sam Barry here one of the guys gave me his racket ex-Irish pro and he'd all the weight in the top of it and I remember trying to play with it you just take so much effort to stop the ball from hitting the back fence to get it down so <laughs> I yeah I, it's a master's art do you still one of the questions was uh, do you speak to Rafa at all? Yeah, I uh, I met him a few times. Especially, I traveled. Uh, I coached Elias Imer, Swedish player, for for a year, and we traveled. He played the Grand Slams, and I met Rafa and all the top guys uh, a few times. And uh, you know, I spoke to them. Uh, so yeah, sometimes I speak to speak to the guys. Great, and that's it, Robin. This went twice as long as it should have, but it was really great. Uh, thanks for. Thanks for the chat and yeah, hopefully RS Tennis keeps growing, gets uh, international stardom and takes over from the other tennis brands. That's what we want. Thank you. Likewise with your your great podcast. What a great chat. Absolutely loved it. I hope you did too. There was so much information in there, so many great little stories and yeah, can't thank Robin enough. So thank you. If you did enjoy that, let me know. If there's other greats you'd like to get me on the podcast in 2021, 
please let me know who you'd like on the show and I will try and get it arranged. And that is that. Until next week, get out there. Hopefully you can play some tennis, spend some quality time with your family and I'll see you then. Bye.